0: The Yeheskel Shiel Ilu Nishmoshim Ephraim Shmuel Abram Abraham Aryeh and Chaya Tova Bas Eliyaza Mendel Um We are in the first still in the first chapter of Yeheskel, which we're still going to be here for a couple of weeks or so until we move into uh, the more sane areas of the book. Uh, we're up to chapter chapter one verse twenty-five. And, uh, I'll just read the verse to you and then we'll describe it. Uh, the verse says, Uh, Yecheskel describes, uh, there was a voice. He heard a voice or a sound above the rakia, above the barrier that separated the world of the angels to the worlds above the holier worlds above, the more spiritual worlds above them. Shera uh, roshon, which was above their heads. But Omdon to And uh, when they heard this sound, the angels would stand to attention, uh, be silent, and they would let their wings down, they would let their wings droop. Um, now in the previous verse, in verse 24, uh, we were describing the sounds that Yehezkel heard from the angels themselves, the flapping of the wings but this time, in this verse, the voice or the sound that he's hear- hearing is not coming from the world of the angels or their wings uh, rather it's coming from the world above their, the barrier that separates their world from the higher realms um, and uh, remember they're in the world of Yetzirah. they live in the world of Yitzira, the world of formation uh, and when this voice or this sound is heard, the angels stand to attention, their wings droop, they're silent. And uh, Yecheskel uses exactly the same language as he used in the previous verse. Uh, but Omdom the, So they stood still to attention in silence and they would let down their wings when they heard the, this sound. Now we explained previously in last week last week's she'er that in the last verse, in verse 24, the words were, that uh, the idea that the uh, under certain circumstances, the w- the uh, angels, the chayot, would uh, stop their wings beating, and uh, which was the shira, which was a song that they would sing. And we said that this referred to the songs of praise that the angels sang to God, that would sometimes be interrupted by silence. Now, we described last week uh, the two conditions why their wings would stop uh, would stop um, thrashing around and creating sound. Um, number one was described by the Bar Now it could be that the angels were silent because of the imminent destruction of the of Migdosh and the capture of Yerushalayim, um, as a result of which the. St- the power of the angels, the power of the uh, chayot, the power power of the srafim was significantly reduced and they didn't have the power to sing. They didn't have the kochos. I don't know if it exactly means power, but they didn't have the wherewithal to sing. That was the opinion of the Bar-Banel. Uh The second opinion that we d- discussed last time was the opinion of the azulai, that the songs of praise from the angels which was uh, created by them flapping their wings, was a reflection of the power of the service of God by the Jews in this world. Uh, When the Jews learned Torah and kept the mitzvahs, the more they did that, the more song the angels sang, the louder was the noise, the louder was the flapping of the wings. So the flapping of the wings of the angels reflected, so to speak, the um, performance of the Jewish people down here on earth. And it was a reflection of the, the praise uh, of the angels to God in res- respect of the Jews' good performance down here on earth. But as the learning in Torah, uh, the learning of Torah and the keeping of the mitzvahs decreased among the Jews, which was happening towards the end of the first temple period, so too the song of the angels diminished until it actually fell silent. At the point of exile, uh, or very close to the point of exile in destruction of Yushalayim, the uh, performance of mitzvot and learning of Torah was almost down to zero, and that was why, in the previous verse, <coughs> Yecheskel describes the angels as ba'omdom, standing silent, torapenukan fehem, and their wings were drooped. Um, the so that uh, it represents a sign of exile and destruction. Because the Jews are not performing the ways that they're supposed to be performing, and as a result of that, the angels don't flap their wings in song, uh, in praise of the Jewish people, and that's hence the silence. So, those were the two things we discussed last week. But here in verse 25, we see that the sound or the voice that the angels hear um, are from above, Um, and there's something external there's a voice or a sound that's external to them coming from a higher realm that silences them and causes their wings to droop in a similar manner Um, we have to deduce therefore that that sound or that voice that they're hearing uh, that causes them to stand to attention and be silent comes from a different source and their silence must be for a different reason so exactly what the sound that the angels are, or the sound that Yecheskel is hearing that is coming from above the world of the angels uh, will have to describe. And essentially there are many ways of describing it. I've picked four ways which are, you know, appealed to me, but there are other ways of describing it. Um, so let's proceed with the words of Chazal. Um, in various places isn't just um, here on on this posuk, but it's a theme that runs through uh, the story of Kedusha. Now, when we daven, when we daven Shachris and we we daven Milcha, we have a repetition of the Amidah. And in the repetition of the, the Amidah, we say certain words that are copying, copying the words that particular groups of angels say to God. So, um, you know, we say Kodosh, Kadosh, Kadosh, Hashem Tzavokos, Moloch L'Oretz Kavodo. We say the words Baruch Kavod Hashem Mimkomo. And we also use the words Yimloch Hashem Li'olam L'Hayech Tzion Now, these are all words that uh, are not created by us. These are words that are sung by the angels. So let's get to the bottom of what's going on here. So Chazal say like this that whilst the praise of the Jewish people for their Torah and learning and performance of mitzvahs reaches the highest spiritual realm, that God receives this 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 message, this, this song of the angels praising the Jewish people, nevertheless, there are certain times when the words of the Jews praising God reach the highest realms of heaven with no assistance, no assistance from the angels. Like, there are certain things that we say or we do that can reach the highest echelons of creation, the highest spiritual realm, without being passed on via the angels. The angels don't have to repeat it and sing it out in song. So when we daven, uh, and particularly when we daven the uh, Kedusha, uh, we we mimic the words that the angels themselves use, which I've just mentioned. Now, one thing that is vitally important to understand is that in davening, and a lot of people don't know this, but in davening, um, let me just give you a, a, a slight a, an analogy here. There's uh, let's say that um, somebody uh, in yeshiva, and he's learning a piece of Gemara, and he answers one of the questions that the Gemara leaves. In other words, the Gemara uh, asks a question, and the Gemara leaves it. The Gemara doesn't find an answer to it. Which happens not very regularly, but it does happen. And he comes up with a great answer. He comes up and he goes to the Rishi and he comes up with a great answer. And the Rishi is very impressed. And the Rishi says to him, "You know, that's a million-dollar answer. That's a million-dollar answer. You know, people have been thinking about this question for six, seven, eight, nine hundred years, and uh, you've come up with this answer. The answer's worth a million dollars." So the guy gets very excited. And he goes down to the Makolet, where he's got a bill for 2,000 shekels. And he says, you know, he says to the shopkeeper, you know, I've come to pay my bill. And uh, the shopkeeper says, well, it's, you know, 2,313 shekels. He says, look, I just answered a cashier in the Gomorrah. The Rosh Hashiva says it's worth a million bucks. So I'll tell you the answer I gave and we'll call it quits. So the guy at the Makolet says, listen, pal, <laughs> you can't pay your bill at the Makolet with an answer you gave in the Gomorrah. That's that's not the currency. The currency is money here. And uh, a similar thing applies to us. When we do mitzvahs and when we keep the Torah and when we learn Torah and everything, so we get rewarded for it. But when it comes to interacting with God, when it comes to appealing to God, there's only one currency. And the only currency we have for that is davening. So that davening is set apart. Davening is unique in that sense. That when it comes to what you need, you need God to help you out and you need God to, or you, you've you got a problem and you need God's assistance. So the only currency is tefillah. The only currency is prayer. And the highlight of tefillah, the, the climax of tefillah, the part of tefillah that really gets through, that really breaks through, is this part of dabbling in Shakris and Mincho which we call Kadusha? So that um we say Kadusha and we mimic the words of the the um the angels and uh in the when we say kodosh kodosh Hashem melochal or Oretz kovodo, holy, 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 whatever that means. Um uh, the world the, the creation is full with God's essence. Um that is, those are the words of the Srafim, the fiery angels, that's found in chapter 6 of Yeshayahu. And we say, mm-hmm. Baruch Hashem Mimkomo, and Yimloch Hashem Le'olam Alahai Chzion L'dobadah Haleliyah. we mimicking the praise offered to God by the Chayos, which uh, we're talking about, and the Ofanim, which are also present in this vision of um, Yecheskel. But, there's a big difference between us saying these words in Kedusha and the angels singing these words to God as part of their role in creation. Their role in creation is to praise God, something we've discussed in an earlier share, why they do that. Um, but that's part of their job. They've got no choice but to do it. We have got a choice to, to do that. And when we say those words, which uh, re- really are mimicking the uh, praise of the angels... Um, um, the reality is that even though we're only mimicking the praise that the angels direct towards God, nevertheless, when we utter these words during kedusha, the angels fall silent. Why? Because our praise of God supersedes their praise of God. The angels' words of praise are perfect because that's the way they were created. They're created to praise God perfectly. And it's why we mimic that praise. Because it is perfect. But despite the fact that the angel's praise is perfect. It can never reach the level that we can create in those words. It can never have the same effect as us down here. Mimicking those words. Because our utterances of the words of praise in Kedusha. Is more perfect than perfect perfect praise. And there's a reason for that. Um, We have a choice whether to praise God. The angels do not. So when we utter the words of Kadusha with Kavana, remember Kavana is uh, very important here. Kavana means um, with intention, with the correct intention. Uh, Kavana never means meaning. People think to do something with meaning, it's got nothing to do with that. Kavana is intention, to do something with intention. Um, uh, the angels can't replicate that. So when we say Kadusha, um, We, our Kedusha reaches, as, as Chazal points out, Lifnim Mimichitzas Hamalachim, beyond the barrier of the angels, because of our free choice. And when we say Kedusha properly, the sound penetrates the highest realm above the angels. And the angels hear the sound above their heads, the sounds of the Jews saying Kedusha. As Yecheskel describes here, (laughs) Vayahi Kol Me'al Larakiah. that he heard the sound above the Rekiah, above the barry, in the higher realm, in God's realm. That's the sound of the Jews saying Kedusha. Asher al-Rosham. It's well, way above their heads. But on them to rapanu And when they hear the Jews saying the words of Kedusha, they are silent, in respect. They, their arms, their, their wings droop, because they can't match it. They have to be quiet because they can't match it. Um. The, the words of Arkadusha penetrate to the throne, to the world, word of, world of Bria, which is the world above the angels. Uh, and uh, if it's said with even greater kavana, it can even reach into the highest realm, into the world of Atsilas, into God's private, so to speak, private realm. As a result of that, they, they fell silent. They fall silent. All the angels will fall silent out of respect. For the, uh, the praise of Israel for God um, said with free will and with kavanah, uh, which is a praise they can't compete with. And constantly they droop their wings and they fall silent out of respect for Israel. But um, having said all that, uh, this is the majority opinion in Chazal of what uh, the angels are listening to here and why they're falling silent out of respect for the Jews, there's a, there's a warning contained in this verse as well. And um, this is pointed out by the Um He says, If it would happen that all of Israel, from one extreme of the world to the other, were silent, God forbid, from saying the kedusha properly, in other words, the Jewish people either, because they weren't able to, or didn't want to, or for whatever reason, there wasn't a continuous um, sound of Kedusha being heard, automatically the angels too would be unable to utter their own Kedusha. Their Kedusha, their ability to say the words of Kedusha, even though it's their own words, nevertheless it it is um, determined and predetermined on the fact that the Jews are doing it as well. The, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar quotes the Zohar in Parish's Boloch. And, uh, the Zohar says there that, that this is what Yecheskel means. But Omdon Torapenu in verse 25 here. When they stood, their wings would stop. The implication is that when Israel below stands silent and do not say the Kedusha properly, then automatically the, the wings of the angels above will also be silenced. So, there's like, there'll be a, like a break in transmission. There'll be a break in transmission between the lower world and the upper world, which uh, can be disastrous. So, in order for, so to speak, symmetry to be maintained between the physical world and the spiritual world, there has to be Kedusha said by the angels, but there has to be a Kedusha being uttered by the Jewish people as well. Now, when we get to chapter three, we'll delve deeper into exactly what the words of the Kedusha mean. I mean, what on earth does it mean? Kodosh, like, Kodosh, Kodosh, Hashem Tzavokos, Maloch, Oretz Kavodah. Like, what does that mean? And, um, Hashem, um, uh, Hashem Mimkoma, God's honor, your know, essence is blessed in His place. Like, what does that mean? We know what the last phrase means, Yimloch Hashem Leolam, that God will reign forever but um, it 's the other two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. What the word "kodosh means uh, we can translate it into English as holy, but that doesn 't give you any further information why, the, why we say it three times, and what does it mean that the uh, the creation is filled with god 's kavod, with god 's essence um, we 'll have to when we come to uh, chapter three we 'll delve deeper into that idea. so the first idea here of um, The sound above the heads of the angels is the idea that um, they're silent. The angels are silent when the Jewish people are uttering the words of Kedusha, which is the highest praise that human beings can offer to God and um, causes the angels to be quiet, to stand down out of respect for the prayers of the Jewish people, for the praise of the Jewish people, uttered, as I said, with free will. And also with Kavona. Kavona is uh, extremely important. Um, although in regular davening, it's not that important. It's important, but it's not that important that you understand what you're saying, because the Hebrew words themselves are intrinsically correct. In other words, in English, you got a word "dog." D-O-G. Now, the word "dog" doesn't intrinsically mean a four-letter creature, four-legged creature that barks, right? It's just a made-up word. Whereas the word kelev in Hebrew actually is intrinsically related to the thing it's describing. So that when it comes to Hebrew, when you're davening in Hebrew, there's no requirement to understand what you're saying. If you're davening in English, there is a requirement to understand what you're saying. Nevertheless, it's always better when you're davening, particularly when you're saying uh, the Kedusha, uh, to understand exactly what you're talking about, because the effect is... uh, you can see in this vision of Yechezkel is extremely powerful. If you say Kodosh, Kodosh, Kodosh with Kavona, uh, you, can, you can picture it in your imagination. That that sound that you're uttering actually makes it all the way to the highest realm of creation, into God's realm itself. So that's one way of understanding the, the voice, the sound that Yechezkel hears that comes from above the area of the angels. The second way of understanding it is outlined by the uh, Malbim. He brings it from various sources. And he says like this. Is the words of the Malbim. He said there's a fourth issue here. We've already dealt with the other three issues that he's brought. When God, so to speak, is being the driving force of the creation. Ba'atzmah. When he's doing it by himself. So we know that God operates in history in two ways. God operates in history actively and passively. That On certain occasions, God will take an active part in the creation. And on certain situations, he he will take a a passive uh, part in creation. Um, That means, for example, that when God, so to speak, took us out of Egypt it's uh, we we know for a fact uh, we say in the Haggadah, right we say Lo um lo god did it like actively himself sometimes god will so to speak interact with the creation and have influence manhig he'll be a manhig uh, passively he'll allow things to happen or he'll get other people to perform actions that fit in with his will he'll get a prophet to do it for him he'll uh, send messengers to do do his bidding for him or he'll create a situation in which the outcome is predetermined it's just a question based on free will how the human beings within the um within the play get to the end of the game so that's like the, the story of purim where so to speak god wasn't active god was passive and allowed the, um, the, so to speak, coincidences to take place. There was no, and that's why the name of God is not mentioned in the Megillah Sesta. So the the, ramp, the, the making a point here like this, that the sound that he's hearing, Yecheskel's hearing, is Ba'echi Yanhi Gashem HaSalaamu Ba'atzma. It's the sound of God interacting, driving the world by himself. Shaloba Mso, without the help of either the Chayas or any other intermediary Rakhashem hashem Basheim kiso really it 's the sound of God interacting with his creation directly davoro al and so to speak his voice his will it 's not a real voice it 's god 's will um, sort of goes over the heads of the all the um, angels that are up there in the lower the lower uh worlds when that sound is heard the sound of god interacting directly with his creation the uh the chaos and all the other uh spiritual beings don't have the power to do anything they just have to stand still like the boss is talking when the boss talks, so you keep quiet. You, you know, when you're in a meeting and uh, everyone's expressing their opinion and the boss bangs on the table and he wants to express his opinion, so everyone puts their arms down by the sides and keeps quiet. So that's the imagery here. Sometimes God will operate through the srofim, Like we saw, and we haven't discussed this yet, but uh, in great detail, but like Yeshayahu saw when, uh, he had his revelation in the sixth chapter of the book of Yeshayahu, Oh, yudei em kalal. <laughs> or sometimes, um, God will not act, uh, with any intermediaries. Kamo shahoya it's <laughs> which is, uh, an example I just gave you before. Like, uh, the story of the exodus from Egypt, uvadar <speaking in> ha <Hebrew> and, uh, certain, uh, certain events that took place uh, during the 40-year trek during the desert. And there are all other examples. The destruction of Sodom. The splitting of the Red Sea. All these things are example of, examples of God, so to speak. Etzbe'alokim. This is God acting uh, actively in history and taking part directly. V'zeh And that's what uh, he's hearing here. This is what Yecheskel's hearing here. Vayikol me'al roshom. He hears a sound that comes from the Rakia, from above the Rakia, above the expanse, above the barriers, that separate the lower worlds, the lower spiritual worlds from the higher spiritual worlds. And at the time when this sound goes out, it's either coming out from the the, the, the world directly above the angels, which is called the, the land of, the world of Bria, where the throne is, which we'll discuss, maybe not today, but certainly next week, uh, from the, the world of the Kisei, the throne, Omeyat Silaso Elion, or from God's private realm that's above that. So, Ozba Then they've got no option. None of these spiritual beings have got any option but to keep quiet, let their wings droop, and just be silent. Oz Omdum Lapol, Lo Yikablu they're completely and utterly, it's almost as if they've been turned on to mute and, uh, you know, the remote control button has been turned to red. They're like switched off. So what the, the album is essentially saying is this, that sometimes God will actively intervene um, uh, in history, uh, issue instructions, or which is essentially his will, directly um, and uh, ignore uh, any type of uh, uh, which is something we discussed in great detail earlier on there was a there's a system right there's a system for god's will to be transferred from the spiritual realm into the physical realm, diluting as it goes down as it 's filtered down from a purely spiritual will till it gets to this world, which is a, a physical will we understand it in physical terms, but sometimes God will miss out all that intervening transformatory um dilute dilution and will act directly in history and when that happens when god does that and transmits his will directly uh as we said like during like during the crossing of the red sea or the exodus from egypt or the 40 years in the desert then that sound or voice of god will be expressed directly from the highest realm and that causes the, the highest to stand still in recognition and respect. That God is acting, as the Malbim describes, Ba'atzmah. God is acting Ba'atzmah by himself without using any intermediaries. He's not using Malachim. He's not using angels. He's not using Nevi'im. He's not using anybody. He's just acting. So this is uh, something that uh, we don't know how regular it is because we can't gauge it. We can only gauge it from uh, certain episodes in the Tanakh. Where well, we can clearly see the Yad Hashem, we can clearly see God, um, God, uh, 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 taking direct action. What's curious is that generally speaking, when God takes direct action, the nace, the miracle that occurs is formidable and it's easy to see. When God acts, so to speak, Emptsaye, he uses intermediaries. So the miracle that uh, that ensues from that uh, that uh, that will that will of God that God wants something changing or God wants something done, any miracle that emerges from that type of interactions re- seems to remain closed. So I'll give you an example. You've got the word nase. Uh, the word nase means miracle. Now there are two sources of the word nase in Tanakh. The word nase uh, can mean a flagpole. And the word "nase" also comes from the root, uh, or is the same root as nisayon, which is a test. So what we see is, generally speaking, this isn't, this isn't, not, this isn't 100% accurate. I'm just giving you, a, this is a generalization. It's a good generalization, because, because the exceptions are very rare. There are two types of miracles. There are miracles that take place that are flagpoles. Like, you can see it for miles around. You don't have to be told that this is God acting. Right? When the, when the Red Sea gets split, you know, there's a, there's a primary creature involved. There's God is involved in that. When you see Stone and Amora destroyed by fire and brimstone, so you know it's the Yad Hashem. Um, when you see water turned into blood, so you know the Yad Hashem is present. However, that is a nace like a flagpole it's uh it's a a big uh you know it's a um um how do you describe it it's like being in sorry it's a banner yeah yeah but the a a flag and a flagpole but okay a banner it's like um uh you know what they have if you've been, ever been in um in 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 times square in new york or in in um Leicester Square in London, so you have, you know, you can't miss, you can't miss the uh, the signs there, the video signs and everything surrounding you. So these 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 are these are particular types of miracles, um, which we call nace nigla, Which uh, you know, you'd be an idiot not to know. You could, you can't not, you can't, you have to notice it. It's impossible not to notice it. There are other miracles that uh, you know. You, you could turn, you could look at it and say, well, you know, that's not really a miracle. That's your coincidence or, you know, it's just a freak of nature or <clears throat> whatever else. And you could turn your back on it. Now, what's important, so the, the irony, I don't see the irony, but the paradox of it is the most important miracles are not the ones that God does by himself. Not the splitting of the Red Sea. Not the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, not the turning of the water into wine, not the dropping of the manna in the desert that uh, you know that the people ate for 38 years. That isn't. Uh, those aren't the important miracles. The important miracles are the ones that you have to work at. there are nests that there is a nisayon that there's a test to it. You have to work it out. Like you could read the story of Purim and. Uh, You know, if you were a a, a, um, a, a a, a critic, a biblical critic, you could read the story of Purim and put it all down to coincidence. There's no God, there's nothing. It's just, you know, it just happened. Similarly with the story of Hanukkah. The story of Hanukkah contained both. And this is the point I want to make here. The story of Hanukkah contained both a nais nigla, God Ba'atzma. That was, you know, the, the candles lasted, the oil lasted for seven days. An extra seven days. That is a nice niggler. That is anyone that witnessed that would say that's the hand of God. That's the hand of God. However, the other miracle that took place there was the war. The war where, you know, a smaller nation, uh, a smaller armed force, a guerrilla force defeated an entire Greek army. Now, you could put that down to, you know, sometimes that happens in history after all. The Roman legions were beaten into submission by the Visigoths and by the Gauls and to a certain extent by the Britons as well, by the Anglo-Saxons. So we have plenty of instances through history of well, and also in the uh, colonial wars, not the colonial wars, but the War of Independence in 1776, a ragtag army, but very well organized by the American colonists outmaneuvered and defeated the ma- the might of the British Empire, so you could point to many occasions in history you know where uh, the f- we we praise God you know uh, that God gave uh, the weak into the hands of the the mighty into the hands of the weak and the the many into the hands of the few well you know that that's not that 's no big fiddish that 's happened many times in history now the point of those two miracles if you notice. From the story of Hanukkah. And this is very important. The rabbis do not mention anywhere. The miracle of the candle. The miracle of the oil. Nowhere. If you look at Al Hanissim. Which is what we say in Benching. Al Hanissim. Bimei Matis Yob and and Kohen Godol. You won't see. Which we say in Benching. And we say the Shemona Esra. All the way through Hanukkah. You won't mention. Here mention. Any mention of the miracle of the candle. Only the wall. When you, when you read Haneros um, Halolu, when you light the candle, there is no mention of the miracle of the candles. None. Zero. The rabbis do not want you to dwell on it. It's not what's important. The whole idea of a nice Nigla, the whole idea of an open miracle, is to open your eyes to the fact that everything in this world is a miracle. The point of the story of Hanukkah And the point of the miracle of the candles is to point you backwards to understand that everything that happens in this world, every interaction in this world, everything that you see and take for granted as nature in this world is in fact an open miracle of God taking place every second. And that's very hard. So even though we're describing here, the mountain is describing here, that the sound, when the angels keep quiet of God, so to speak, taking, uh, interacting with the world directly without any um, intermediary, that normally is, although it's a paradox, that uh, when God interacts with the world directly, you think that was the greatest of interactions. Nevertheless, it's not the greatest of interactions because that reduces a person's uh, ability to have free will. To understand that everything he looks at is a gift from God, is something that's come from God, because if you you know, the the generation of the um, the generation of the uh, of the desert, so they weren't they there were no great shakes. I mean, how could you not believe in God after seeing what happened on Mount Sinai? How could you not believe in God after splitting the Red Sea? How could you not believe in God after seeing ten plagues? How could you not believe in God after seeing the manna fall? How could you not believe in God when you saw bitter water turn into to, into sweet water? How could you not believe in God when you saw Korah being devoured by the sand? I mean, you know, uh, nothing. You know, they, the, 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 their belief, their bitachon in a kodesh was zero. They had nothing. There. It wasn't a question of free will. They had no choice. It was it was a davar pashut. Whereas our generation. Our generation, where well, we don't see the hand of God. We don't see it. The only way we can see the hand of God is to look out of our window and see God acting, so to speak, passively. That God, everything goes, moves, seems to move like clockwork. And the reality is it doesn't move like clockwork. It's God, so to speak, his intermediaries, or God himself, pressing the refresh button all the time. But he keeps it hidden. Hence the language Adon Alam. Which we sing, Adon Shanelam. It's the master who is a- Olam. He's the master of the world, but he's the Adon Shanelam. He's the Adon that is hidden. He hides himself. And that's why our generation and the previous generations too are far greater than the generations of the, of the desert. Much greater, far greater, exponentially greater. And this, this really explains, I, I'm, I'm getting a bit off subject here, but this is very important because we just dealt with it in the Torah. That the Torah just describes Moshe Rabbeinu as the most on of Mikol Adom. He was the most humble of all men. Now, the reality is Moshe Rabbeinu knew exactly how great he was. Listen, he was a very intelligent man. And he understood that there was nearly two and a half million people in the desert. And God only spoke to him. So he must have realized he was pretty special. And uh, the Torah was given to him. And uh, God appeared to him at the burning bush. And uh, he was accepted as a leader of Israel and he performed all these miracles, you know, with his stick. He knew how great he was. So why was he the why was he the considered to be the most uh, humble of all men? So I heard I heard an explanation that really appealed to me. And this this goes to what I'm saying here now. about God's interacting with the world The, the, the Medrash, the Zohar, actually says that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was shown the Sefer told us Odom. In the beginning of Barathees, the Torah describes their Sefer told us Odom. This is the book of the generations of man. That uh, Moshe Rabbeinu had a peak, a sneak preview of the book. And he saw the generations that would come after him. And he saw his own generation, a generation that saw miracle after miracle, open miracle after open miracle. And then he saw the generations that would come before Mashiach when God would be completely hidden from the world. And he saw that the Jewish people would still be going to Shul. They'd still be wearing their kippot in the street. They'd still be yearning for the land of Israel. They'd still be wanting to learn Gomorrah. They'd still be wanting to learn Chumash every week. And he thought to himself, how great are they compared to us? We... So we, you know, it's obvious that we believe in God. we will Daven, we'll do, we'll do whatever. We're Nasav and Of course we'll do Nasav and Nishma. God's there on top of the mountain. So there's no big kunz that we we are who we are. But this generation, the generation of the Hamar, which is, that's what our generation, the Gemara calls our generation, the generation before Mashiach, the generation of the Hamar. We're called the generation of the Hamar because, generally speaking, people go to Shul and they don't know what saying. Don't have a clue what they're talking about? You, you take a person on Friday night, Kabbalah Shabbos, and you say to him, "You know, you just read a chapter of Tehillim in Kabbalah Shabbos. Please explain it to me." So, how many people could explain it? We're well, like a Khamar, like donkeys. We go, but we go to shul. We don't see God. We don't see it. All we see is trouble. Times of trouble. Sar. We just come out the generation of the great one of the greatest tragedies in Jewish history. And guess what? We're still going to shul. We're still learning Torah. We're still doing. And that's why, um, Moshe Rabbeinu was the most humble of all men because he appreciated that his, his belief in God, his bitachon in God is nothing compared to ours. Nothing. Our generation are the generation of Gadlus. Our generation are the generation of the Hamar. That we're doing it. We're doing it. And we're still, even though we don't know what, why or how or how we can, why we're still here. And yet we're still doing it. We're still going to shul. We're still listening to, well, we try and listen to the rabbi. We do as we uh, do as much as we can. And we're still here. And we've seen no miracles. All we've seen is Sarah. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu was so humble. So this is the idea here. that, that I think it's one of the ideas that the Malvin's trying to get over. The God acting Ba'atzma. So that causes the... That causes the angels to the not the sound of God's will. It's not really a sound, it's uh it's the the feeling that they get when God is acting, so to speak, when they feel God's will pass through them directly into the physical world, they are silent. God bangs on the the boss bangs on the table and there's utter silence. But when God bangs on the table and there's utter silence, he takes part in this world, he interacts with this world, so that reduces and we see it so that reduces our free will and that reduces our ability to have bitachon because if you see god so what do you need bitachon for what do you need free will for so that's why it's a, a very irregular occurrence and why this generation in particular well the, the generations that have come since you know last few hundred years are such so much greater than the generations of the people that uh, walked through the desert and came to the land of Israel? Okay, that's uh, enough on that subject. It's, it's a long subject, but uh, I've just given you the um, the um, um, the surface without breaking the surface. Okay, so that, that those are two two. I've given you two ideas there of what the Yeheskel is. Um, um hearing or so uh, witnessing or or imagining here the sound that's from above the angels there are two other explanations i want to express here very quickly one is from directly from the zohar in parashas parashas the zohar says in parashas parashas i'll quote the zohar to you by he call me Allah uh, or roshamik the zohar quotes Al possible that the angels when the angels heard the sound above them from the worlds of God, God's two worlds, the worlds of Bria and the world of Atzilus, They were silent and they, their wings drooped. Says the, the Zohar, Why he calls them, Yaakov. They were quiet when Yaakov spoke up. Well, what's Yaakov doing now? Does anybody remember Yaakov? We mentioned him in one of the very first Shirin. He's one of the Chayes. He's the faces of one of the highest. So he is allowed to speak up. That when Yaakov Ovinu, who is up there, in, I don't know exactly how to describe how he's up there, but he's up there. That Yaakov Ovinu is uh, together with other tzadikim when they create a tefillah, when they pray, that the sound of their tefillos are heard may al harakia Now, I'm not sure exactly what the Zohar is getting at here, but it certainly seems to imply that um, that, um, the the, the Avot certainly have got the ability to make appeals to God directly on behalf of the Jewish people, and they can bypass the Chayis. They can bypass uh, all the other celestial beings. They can bypass... All gods, so to speak, intermediaries up there, and uh, get straight to head office, get straight to the boss's office, and make an appeal to the boss directly. That seems to be the language of the Zohar. Um, and of course, in deference to one of the avos, uh, specifically here, the Zohar is talking about Yaakov because it's from. Parash, it's uh, uh, the Zohar is in Barashis and it's discussing Yaakov Avinu himself. The the story when Yaakov uh, saw the um, saw the ladder going up to heaven with the angels coming down and the angels going up. So this is one of the comments that the uh, the Zohar makes that uh, Yaakov, so to speak, could transcend that, could transcend the world of the angels with his own to fill up. Okay, so that is and that and at that point the angels have respect. So respect for Yaakov, respect for Yitzchok, and respect for Avram um a fourth explanation is the obvious one, um, which is brought by Rashi and it's brought by the Matsudas David, and the, it goes like this What what are they listening to? Lafaresh Mosai on Valohi Rishu. Um They stand and Velohi Rishu. The angels stand and they make no noise. But Omakishehoya vai hikom me alarakira shellra oshumroxalom Keshehoya Hamokaman Hashem, Madaber No, you know when the angels are quiet and they drop their wings and are silent standing to attention when God is speaking to his prophets. They stand still in deference to the connection, the supreme connection that exists at the time of prophecy between the prophet and God. And their wings droop because they are so to speak um unable unable to do anything while God, so to speak is in cahoots is in a, in a um in a conference call, so to speak, with his prophets. when God speaks to the prophets, then at that point the the angels have to remain silent out of respect for the conversation that's going on between God and his prophets. Now, exactly how that prophecy works, we'll deal with when we get, um, I suppose, when we get to chapter 17 of Yehezgal, we'll go through exactly the mode by which God communicates through prophecy to prophets, and uh, we'll take it a little bit more seriously then. But this this seems to be a, uh, an, a the opinion of Rashi. It's also the opinion of Messrs. David. Other commentators bring it down that the angels are quiet when God speaks to the uh, prophets. Now this explanation of Rashi, let's just see if there's any questions here, uh, any questions in the in the k- Kasha box? Chat. Zero. No one. I'm either saying something right or totally wrong. Okay. So this explanation of Rashi and also the Masuda's David uh, 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 that explains this possible that God, so to speak, uh, everyone's quiet when God, so to speak, is communing with his prophets is really a prelude to the next chapter, which we're coming to very shortly. Uh, We're almost at the end of chapter one. And again, chapter two takes us back really to normality, not normality, but uh, normality compared to chapter one. Um, So this idea of Rashi is really a prelude to chapter two, which begins with a prophecy to Yechiskil. Now, in chapter two, verse one, I don't want to ruin the story for you. <clears throat> but there's a lot, there's a lot going on in chapter two. Um, chapter two begins. Uh, God spoke to me. Ben He said, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Now, the first time that God communicates, so to speak, verbally and directly to Yecheskel in the Sefer is in chapter two, at which point, uh, the angels down tools and are silent, as Rashis just pointed out. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, God, so to speak, is communing through prophecy with Yehezkel, who is a prophet, at which point the angels, so to speak, as Rashi has just described, will down tools, be silent and stand to attention. And although this first chapter is also prophecy, obviously it's a prophecy, uh, <clears throat> that Yecheskel is, is experiencing it's not the same type of communication as God communicating verbally and directly in other words what we're seeing here is a vision that God has no God voice in there's no God voice in this uh, prophecy what Yecheskel is seeing is a video file with no audio accompan- accompaniment Any audio accompaniment is being provided by his own imagination. So here is a specific type of prophecy that we're witnessing here where there's no God voice contained in it. Now, obviously, God can speak with anybody's voice, right? So he can speak with the voice of a man or woman. Uh, God's neither man nor woman. I heard one rabbi comment the other day that God is both man and woman. I would uh, strongly... uh, 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 deflect any refute uh, that idea completely god is neither man nor woman um but a god voice is an, a god speaking to the navi which is the first verse of chapter two by yomar elai he spoke to me and he said stand on your feet but and i'll speak to you now here in in chapter one there's no there's no language like that there's no god speaking to um uh, God, there's no, there's no wording in the verses that says, you know, God spoke to Yechezkel. That doesn't exist here. Yechez, but Yecheskel still reports the exact words that God wants him to say. But the transmission to him is not verbal. It's not direct. It's via a vision. And it's therefore a different type of prof- prophetic experience um, from the ones that we're going to see later on in the book, which are the other, the majority of the other, prophetic visions, or the other prophetic experiences that Yehezkel has. When we get to chapter 2, God speaks to Yehezkel directly, like Yehezkel hears God's voice, whatever that means. I mean, he hears God's voice, he actually hears a voice, instructing him to relay information to the Jewish people, as we'll see, at which point the angel, angels are silent. Now, the question is, Rashi's told us, you know, when the God speaks to his prophets, so the angels are silent. And so when we get to chapter two and God starts to speak to Yich Eskel on a regular basis, so the angels are going to be, a, be silent. Why is that? Which is, It's a question to, um, which is raised uh, by the Rambam and it's raised by other Jewish philosophers. Why? Why do they have to be quiet? Can't, is heaven a place where you can't do two things at once? You know, men can't do two things at once, right? Men can't multitask. Everybody knows that. You know, a man can't chew gum and walk at the same time. Women can multitask. But in heaven, everyone can multitask. That's the whole essence of God. God is the ultimate multitasker, which could lead one to believe that, you know, God was feminine. Um, if anything, certainly not masculine, because if God was purely masculine, this world would be in terrible trouble. Correct, men? Well, we, can't, we don't even know how to take the pacha properly. Correct, gila? Am I right? The men do not know how to take the pach out correctly. Can't be trusted to do anything. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on that because I'll get into trouble. Okay, so the Rambam asks why is that? So listen to the way the Rambam describes a Novi. Bear in mind um, uh, the words of the Rambam. Bear these words, and I wrote this into my notes a long time ago. Bear these words in mind when some fool tells you that there have been people in recent generations who are prophets. I'll say that again. I'm going to read to you what the Rambam says as to why this is, why the angels. Um, hold on, Harvey wrote. So we're not to understand that the same voice that spoke to Moshe at the burning bush. No, the voice that spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush was the voice of his father. That's why Moshe was attracted to it. That's the Zohar. So God can speak in many voices, right? He's like Mike Yarwood, if you remember Mike Yarwood, uh, Harvey. Um, anyway, so I'm just going to read to you the words of the Rambam when he describes what a Nobby is. And I suggest you bear in mind these words very carefully when some fool comes and tells you that there have been people, rabbis in recent generations who are prophets. These are the words of the Rambam. Prophecy is bestowed only upon a very wise person of strong character who is never overcome by his natural inclinations in any regard. Instead, with his mind, he overcomes his natural inclinations at all times. He must also possess a broad and correct perspective. A person who is full of all these qualities and is physically sound, he or she is fit for prophecy. These characteristics do not themselves bring prophecy, remove obstacles that a prophet might face, were he to lack them. Prophecy is not acquired in a short time or without great effort. When he enters the paradise, which is the realm of all knowledge, and is drawn into these great and sublime concepts, if he possesses a correct perspective to comprehend and grasp them, he will become Kodosh. Uh, I'm not sure what he means by that. He will advance and separate himself from the masses, who proceed in the darkness of the time. He must continue and diligently train himself not to have any thoughts whatsoever about fruitless things or the vanities and intrigues of the times in which he lives. This is because prophecy is not acquired in a short time or without great effort. Instead, his mind should constantly, with no interruptions at all, be directed upward bound beneath God's throne of glory to comprehend comprehend the holy and pure forms and gazing at the wisdom of God in its entirety and in all its manifestations from the most elevated spiritual form until the navel of the earth appreciating God's greatness from them. After these preparations the spirit of prophecy will immediately rest upon him. Nevertheless, there is a the possibility that God will withhold prophecy, even from a person who is worthy of it. When the spirit rests upon him, his soul becomes intermingled with the angels called Ishim, who we've not discussed yet, these angels. We'll discuss them in a later chapter. And he will be transformed into a different person and will understand with a knowledge different from what it was previously uh, designed to do, to appreciate. He will rise above the level of otherwise men as Shmuel told Shaul when Shaul became a prophet, but Sal Hashem, the spirit of God will descend upon you, his imam and the spirit of prophecy will rest upon you, and you will be transformed into a different person. So, when God is communicating with a prophet, He is communicating with a person who has reached the ultimate goal for which man was created. To get to such a level that he can go beyond all barriers and above all levels of angels and reach the highest spiritual level capable for a created creature, this is tachlis Abriya. This is the purpose of creation, to be as godlike as a created creature can be. Angels, on the other hand, can never reach that level as they have no free will and no abilities to advance. A prophet, on the other hand, has reached a level based on his own decisions where he can do that. He can therefore break through the barrier above the angels into the realms that the angels cannot enter. In recognition of that communication between God and the novi, the angels are silenced. They're silenced out of respect for an individual who has performed the Tachlis Habriah. not because he's programmed to do so, but because of the free will decisions that he's made and the discipline he's applied into his life. Angels are respectful of that, totally respectful of that, on the basis that they know they can never achieve what this particular individual has achieved. Therefore, they down their tools, they're silent, out of respect for the Novi, who has managed to transcend into an area that they can't transcend to. So they're quiet but they're not totally quiet. They're not totally silent. They still sing Kodosh, Kodosh, Kodosh. They still sing Borof Kovod Hashem in Kono, but it's ver- barely audible out of respect for the Navi in communication with God. As God himself told Eliyahu Novi at his most intimate moment of prophecy, that um, again, i refer you to <coughs> the Posuk in Malachim, where God is talking to uh, Eliyahu Hanavi and he's performing an act that he only did for Moshe Rabbeinu. He passed in front of him. Why Yom God said, go and stand. He's talking to Eliyahu Hanavi. But Omadatah Stand on the mountain. Lifnei Hashem before God. be Hashem over. God is going to pass in front of you. Ruach Godola. There'll be a strong wind ma Chozok Mefarag Horin, so powerful that it will split mountains, Umeshabas Loyim, and shatter boulders Lifnei Hashem from before God. But says God, Lo Baruach Hashem, God is not in the wind. But Ruach Rash, and after the wind there will be an earthquake. Lo Hashem, God's not in the wind in the earthquake. Va'achah Harash. And after the earthquake, Aish there's fire. Lo Ba Hashem, God is not in the fire. Ve'achar HaEish, and after the fire, Kol There's a still, almost silent, tiny sound. The sound, when God passes by, is the almost silent sound of the angels still saying, Kodosh, 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 Hashem Tsvokos, Borof Kavod Hashem Mikomo. So at the moment of most intimate prophecy, apart from Moshe Rabbeinu, the most intimate moment of prophecy ever known, which was Eliyahu Navi on Har Carmel, on, on Har Sinai, um, the, the, the moment of that intimacy was punctuated by almost silence, which is what uh, Rashi is describing here. Almost silence. And what the Rambam is describing here. Almost silence. <coughs> the angels themselves. Are almost silent. Barely audible. But out of re- <coughs> And that's out of respect for the prophet. But they still continue with their words. <coughs> that they sing consistently. Kodosh, Kodosh, Kodosh. So. <coughs> there you have. There you have verse 25 in a nutshell. Um, what we're left to do is verse 26, which is going to be next week. Verse 26. I'll just read it to you because it is is my want. Um, which is getting even more. It's getting even closer. We're getting even closer to the real deal now, right? We've, we've started off by looking at the feet of the angels and we're right up there now. We've seen we've heard the sound above the rakia in the world, realm of God. And now comes the famous possum. Verse 26, which I'll read and then we'll deal with it next week. Umimal la rakia, ashera rosha, Above the expanse, above the rakia, above the barrier, which is above the heads of the angels. Kamara evan sapir. It was like the appearance of a stone called sapir. And also demus kisse. The appearance of a throne. But Al Demus Kisei and on the likeness, on the appearance of the throne, demus kamari odon. was the likeness and appearance of a man Milmala above it, above the throne. So that's uh we've got all that to look forward to. Um next week, exactly who the man is. Um yeah, don't know who the man who is the man? Okay, who's we'll see who the man is next week. Um so we're doing the same. Yeah, that's wrong. Why did the age of prophecy come to an end? Who asked that question? Gila. Uh, that's that's a, a very important question. It's, yeah. All the best questions every week. The best questions get asked at two minutes past six, right? Why did the age of prophecy come to an end? So that's a, a question that we'll deal with later on in the series. Um, hold on. So we're not doing something. Was, yeah, okay. If anybody's got any questions, now's the time to ask. No? Yes? No? Black? White? Okay! If no one's got any questions, even Jones not got, got a question this week. Jones, Jones gone. Or well, maybe she wasn't here. I don't know. I don't know who was he. Okay then. If no one's got any questions, next week we'll deal with the man on the throne, right? It's like a the title of a of a film, right? The man on the throne, or title of a book. Next week we'll deal with the man on the throne. Who is he? And where did he go? And what's he doing? And is he from Leeds? David Taylor. Do you reckon he could be, possibly be from Leeds? The man on the throne. Okay. All will be. He's certain. I can tell you. I can tell you something for certain that Gordon. He certainly wasn't Scottish, right? Absolutely for certain that he wasn't Scottish. Right. It's been nice uh, spending time with you people. Uh, have a great week. I uh, hope you enjoyed the year. And same time next week, we'll be back on to find who this, uh, who's the man on the, on the throne. Call to everybody. Bielsa, it was Bielsa. So, yeah, see you next week. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.